Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory or on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Before we get into this week's episode, I just want to make sure that you all know about the Cooley Cooley giveaway that I'm currently running over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. Last week, I spoke with Lisa Curtis, founder of Cooley Cooley, America's number one Moringa superfood brand. Lisa first learned of Moringa while serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in Niger, but she was evacuated, yet her story didn't end there. She went on to found Cooley Cooley, and for one lucky listener of the My Peace Corps Story podcast, you can win an amazing pack of all of their products. If you want to enter, head on over to MyPeaceCorpsStory.com slash Cooley This week, I talked with Janet Miller, who served in Burkina Faso from 1982 to 1984. This interview was an absolute delight for me because, as many of you know, I too was a Peace Corps volunteer in Burkina Faso, serving 30 years after Janet. It was an absolute pleasure to hear her stories from a country that means so much to me. Yet, like every volunteer, her story is unique. I think you guys will really enjoy it. So, without further ado, here is episode 28 with Janet Miller. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Janet Miller, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Janet, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing, Tyler? Doing very well, and excited to talk with you about your time in Burkina Faso, a country that I served in. But we had a time span of 30 years that separated us. So I'm really excited to hear the similarities and the differences, you know, that you experienced and I experienced. And not only did you serve in Burkina Faso, you were in Oradara, uh, which was a village that was pretty close to my site that I spent um, a good deal of time in. So just hearing your experience of serving as a volunteer in Oradara in the early 80s is really exciting for me. So I, I hope you're excited as well to to have that opportunity to to talk with someone who was there 30 years apart from your time in Burkina Faso. Absolutely. I feel like talking to you is sort of time travel into the future. And so much changed in Burkina between you and me, um, including the population doubling. Mm-hmm. For all our listeners who aren't as familiar with Burkina Faso as the both of us, can you tell everybody a little bit about Burkina Faso and what you were doing there as a Peace Corps volunteer? Yeah, Burkina Faso is landlocked um, West Africa, that bulge of Africa that goes off to the west. It's it's kind of nestled just south of the Sahara and just north of the wetter forest belt. So it's it's um, mostly dry. It's not desert. It's not forest. It's it's called Sahel. It's sort of the 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 open country with scattered trees. 
in between. And I was in Orodora, which is the, the far southwest of the country. And it's, um, it was the wettest place. I kind of wanted to go there because it was the mango capital of Burkina Faso. And I, I didn't want to be in the really hot, dry north. Um, and I got my wish and it, it was more difficult than I anticipated. Um, but I was there officially and trained as a forestry volunteer. And our job was to, as the foresters were all supposed to go out and start these tree nurseries for reforestation. And I got to Orodara and found that my counterpart was going to retire before I even, before my service term was up. And he had no interest in working with this inexperienced. I, I admit myself, I was clueless. Um, he didn't want to work with me, foreign girl. Um, his family was super kind to me. Um, they they invited me for dinner. They became friends, but the because there were also two coups while I was in the country. The World Bank was funding the tree nurseries, and every time there was a coup, they would pull the funding for the nursery. And so I really didn't have a job at all. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out that it was entirely up to me to come up with work for my meaningful work for myself um, because I would like jump on my motorcycle and ride into Bobo Jalasso, the nearest city and get on the train and go to the Peace Corps office and tell the assistant director who was in charge of forestry, like, I don't have a job. And it, it, the response that I got from them was kind of this veiled, get out of here and stop being such a pain in the butt you know <laughs> their job was like was not to like hold our hands um it kind of segues into your question like we're gonna jump all over here i think um but all my life all through school i had always heard about how lazy i was and you know i was always disappointing everybody because i wasn't working as hard as i should have been and everybody was always push, push, pushing me to do my homework and, you know, push, push, pushing me. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I was in a situation where I had absolutely nothing expected of me. And when I said, you know, I don't have any work, they were sort of like, hey, go away, you're, you're bothering us. And for me, that was really transformative because I got bored and started making up projects that really interested me and ended up working my butt off on those. And I learned from that, that I don't do very well when someone's pushing me, but when I make my own work that I'm passionate about, I'm not actually lazy at all. Mm. And I, and you know, that was one of the biggest kind of personal growth takeaways that I got from Peace Corps, my Peace Corps experience. Mm -hmm. Now, you definitely learn a lot. And that's one thing that figuring out how you work and the work environment that you need to be in, because Peace Corps is very different from anything that you would experience in the U.S. and gives you an opportunity to, to contrast the, the, the two. Now, what did you end up doing as a volunteer? You said, I mean, that the tree nursery was very dependent on the political yeah. situation and, and funding. What were some of your projects as a volunteer? 
So I ended up locally in Oradara um, working with, seeking out traditional beekeepers who traditionally made these woven grass hives that they would, or a log hive that they would like climb a tree and stick these hives in a tree and um, just raid the hive. The, the, this, the bees would leave and they would take all the honey. And I worked with local beekeepers to introduce what locally now people in Tucson use these hives and they just call them top bar hives. But in the early eighties, it was this special African adapted kind of low tech, easy to make locally hive, the Kenya top bar hive that was also adapted to African bees, which behave really differently and are, and tend to leave the hive. Um, and so I worked with some a handful of traditional beekeepers to introduce these hives that they could manage the, the, the colony instead of just robbing the colony and produce more honey. And originally I thought, great, more honey, good. And the surprise that came out of it was that as I worked with these beekeepers, I realized they are chewing up the wax, you know, like eating the comb and spitting the wax out and throwing it away when... 80 kilometers away in Boba Jalasso, there was a thriving craft industry of bronze casters who are using lost wax method, who were using mm -hmm. beeswax, and batik, which is also like wax resist fabric dyeing. And there was a huge market for beeswax that the local beekeepers didn't really um, tie into. Additionally, you know, it's like, additionally, it was like, okay, we're going to market the honey in Bobo where it where you can get a lot more money for it, but honey had to be transported in glass bottles, generally recycled Johnny Walker red bottles with the <laughs> standard honey bottle. Um, and putting that on a bush taxi and transporting it 80 kilometers over a washboard road wasn't going to work. No. Um, so the honey ended up staying local um, and, the wax and you know it's like it was also great because the wax you can just like keep adding to your wax ball until you have a really big bunch of it it keeps forever and so they they as i left that project they were starting to save wax so that when someone went into bobo they could sell this product that was originally thrown away for actually more per kilo than honey was selling for in the city so that was the beekeeping project. And then toward the end, because even as a child, I was curious about plants and, you know, I was a child botanist. I was also hanging out under the mango trees with my women, friends and neighbors, um, learning language. And um, because I had a biology degree and I was interested in field biology, I was just taking off on my motorcycle and watching birds and looking at the, and botanizing to kill that all that time I had on my hands. And so I learned the plants really well. And I would go off to Bobo to kind of get away from Oradara and speak English and talk to other volunteers. And I struck up a friendship with somebody who worked for USAID in the National Forest Service, whose office was in Bobo managing this very large national forest that came right up to the boundary. 
shared a boundary with Bobo Jalasa, which is the second largest city. And he said, wow, you could like, you have the skill set to identify what plants we should be managing in the forest instead of just blading the entire biodiverse forest and planting eucalyptus plantations, which is real easy to do a cost-benefit analysis on what a plantation costs and brings in. But they were starting to think, what, what's the natural forest worth? You know, there's got to be a value on that. Mm-hmm. And so my last six months, I actually was transferred to a small house out in the National Forest. And I went out every day and, you know, decided what I, who I wanted to talk to and what I wanted to do that morning. Some of the things that I did, for example, I would... Um, go, you know, get on my motorcycle, go into Bobo and walk in the market looking for any product that came from a wild woody tree, shrub or vine um, and look at what the value on that was, measure, kind of do a, do a, um, a value, document the values of that and ask the um the seller, if they knew where it came from, where it came from, because most of that stuff in the market in Bobo came from the Dindaresso forest that was the national forest that was right on the edge of town. And so although officially local people were not supposed to gather anything in the forest, economic pressure made it imperative and even subsistence pressure made that imperative. So I was looking at the value of these things that were being sold in the city in the hopes that that could put a monetary value on the native bush. I was also going out and looking at subsistence uses in different populations. So I would walk to a Fulani herdspeople camp and gather plants, you know, like snap branches off on the way and arrive with a big bundle of vegetation and lay it all out. And then we'd all hang out and talk about like, what's this good for? What's that good for? Um, and they had, you know, the, the herds people and the local farmers had very different sets of information about what the bush was used for. Um, because herds people had traditionally been nomadic, they were semi-settled, but they had like veterinary medicines that farmers knew nothing about. One of the things that interested me the most that I don't know if anyone still has ever looked at seriously um, But over and over again, I would have like some kind of little red fruit that was mostly seed or, you know, what, you know, some odd thing. And I'd I'd be like, this fruit, what's this for? And they were like, puh, that just, that's not worth anything. Kids nibble on that. And I suddenly, you know, it's like I saw this pattern of child foods and in a, in a country where people are really poor and farmers are eating a really, well, farmers and herds people are both are eating a pretty monotonous diet of starch, you know, like millet and a handful of different sauces. Um, I, I, I thought, you know, what's the value on micronutrients that kids need that grownups don't need for child health and growth? And what happens if you blade the entire national forest and you replace it with eucalyptus? What happens to 
child health in a place where kids, you know, it's like, oh, that's not worth anything. That's just a kid snack became like took on a whole other meaning for me. So I absolutely love that story for multiple different reasons. One, one being that I drove through that national forest every single time I came from my village into Bobo. So I, I mean, I uh-huh. can, I can picture exactly where you're talking about. That's the road. Okay. That, that yeah. is the road. And then, uh-huh. uh, I'm a biologist. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so I studied uh, ecology in, in undergrad and have been working in that field. So just hearing the work that you were able to do in Burkina Faso and, it's just absolutely amazing. And then also starting to talk about the the uses of the natural products and then getting into food. And you, you made a comment um, that they were eating a lot of millet. Were they eating much corn when you were a volunteer there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because I knew that that, was, yeah. uh, that came with the colonial times and it's been a large transition. But we didn't really have um, millet toe in my village. It was pretty much all corn. Oh. Okay. Well, I think the little millet was more in the north. Mm-hmm. I was eating more sorghum millet, which, you know, in Burkina, it's just like the big millet and the little millet. And no one really, like, sometimes they'll call it sorghum. Yeah. But um, we, we were eating sorghum millet, mm-hmm. which I loved. <laughs> and then I guess talking about something else you loved or remember fondly, do you have a favorite Peace Corps memory that sticks out in your mind or one of those stories that really encapsulates your time as a volunteer and and how you felt about your service? Yeah, I think those would have to be sort of two back-to-back memories. Um, And one one of which I wrote about, which was just when I was still in Oradara and living very much in town with a lot of people around me, um, just the kind of peaceful, repetitive friendship experiences because I didn't have a whole lot of successful, like pinnacle, aha, I'm doing it. I'm really a Peace Corps volunteer work things that happened. Um, I think a lot of volunteers typically have like these peak experiences where like, wow, it's really happening. I'm really making a difference. And I didn't have that. Um, But just the pleasure of, company of my women friends in the courtyard where in the afternoons they would have a little bit of down. I mean, women never have downtime in Africa. So the rest time tends to be manual tasks where you can sit in the shade with your women friends and shell peanuts or unravel secondhand sweaters from the market and knit those sweaters into little pants and shirts for your kids, you know, like hand work um, where you can rest in the shade and enjoy friendships. And the point I, I, I love learning language. I love English and I, I learned language at the time. Anyway, when I was younger, I picked up languages really easy. So once I sort of got to be proficient in Jula I could enjoy just like relaxing and with friends and enjoying the language. Another, another experience that's related to that was that I wrote about in the, in the written questionnaire is walking in the evenings with Mariam and her daughter to deliver dinner to her husband, who I, 
I don't remember his name because I always called him Monsieur Badeau. So it was like Monsieur Badeau and Mariam were a really happy couple. Um, they seemed to enjoy each other so much. And he was a night guardian at the forest service site, which there was always supposed to be a nursery there. And there was a little shed and his job was to guard the little shed. So he would spend nights there. And we would walk over outside of Oradara and over the little river and through this sort of dark mango forest that was honking with the little sweet honks of fruit bats and hang out with him while he ate his dinner, chatting and watching the sky grow dark and the stars come out and um, and then walking back in the dark together. And I just loved kind of the peaceful habit of that walk with people who were content with each other and the world and that rubbed off, that contentness rubbed off on me, which was nice because Orodara was really difficult for me. Um, I felt very isolated from my own culture and there were missionaries in town, but they were not very friendly to me. So they were, you know, they were Canadian. I, I originally thought, oh, good. You know, I'll have a support system from my own culture, but that was not the case. Um, and so the flip side of it, I, I found that that peace just in friendships and the habit of friendship that was really nice. And the other thing that I did to cope with that isolation was jump on my motorcycle and ride the blasted, you know, washboard motocross obstacle course of a road into Bobo where um, there were other volunteers. There was a volunteer who taught English there and she had this beautiful French colonial house that, you know, people gathered at. And I spent an embarrassing amount of time away from Oradara in Bobo at her house enjoying the French bakery in Bobo and the, the, the company of other volunteers and um, going out dancing and drinking beer in, you know, these beautiful outdoor under the sky clubs. Um, and at the time that, that was, you know, and still, I think that that was sort of a source of embarrassment and shame to me that I wasn't being a real volunteer. You know, I needed to get away a lot and and hang out with other Americans. Um, maybe that would have been different if there had been another volunteer in Oradara. Uh, it was interesting to watch other volunteers who had two volunteers in the town and sort of like no matter how mismatched they were, they turned into these really sort of, you know, and no matter what their genders were or their, their sexual orientation, they kind of turned into these eccentric old married couples. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you had another volunteer in Banzon that, that, that you were tossed together with. No. So there was actually a Canadian volunteer who was there, uh, living right next door to me for my first six months, uh, which which was definitely nice, and I spent a lot of time hanging out with her. Uh, but just you talking about you know going into Bobo and spending that time with other volunteers. I mean, I I did the the same thing. I mean, every uh -huh. it would be about every three weeks at least. You know, once a month I would go spend a long a long weekend 
and, you know, going out to those clubs and, you know, eating the foods that they didn't have in my village and drinking mm-hmm. and dancing and also just, you know, connecting with the other volunteers and sharing the highs and oftentimes the lows of our service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, what a beautiful city. Mm-hmm. Oh, one, <laughs> I of, loved Bobo. One, one of my favorite places on the planet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you started, I guess, hinting at some of the, the difficulty uh, that you had as a volunteer. Uh, is there a memory that's opposite of, you know, those positive memories you have, a, a, a negative memory or story from your time in Burkina Faso? Yeah, the story that I wrote about, you know, with one of my beekeeping, one of my traditional beekeeping village families contacts um it's very much a story of just sort of like cross-cultural frustration working being a single a young single woman working with men in a culture where expectations of american women were based on you know like the cheesiest american movies that made it to the big outdoor theaters you know it's like oh we're all there you know, it's like we're super easy. We just want to sleep with everybody, which, you know, the missionaries in my town also shared that. Um, and so it was like constantly having to sort of have boundaries around men that I didn't need to have at home. Um, I never, again, I never, uh, again, from, you know, if you read the, um, if, if listeners read the blurb, it's sort of in contrast with what I said about always feeling really safe, no matter where I was or what time of day it was. I always felt safe in Burkina. So I never really felt physically threatened or in any kind of danger, but it was just the constant sort of low-grade um, fending off of unwanted male attention that is, you know, it's, it's certainly having its moment here in the U S and I've certainly experienced that here in the U S but in a cross cultural situation, it's even more difficult to kind of know what, where those fine lines are. Mm-hmm. And so there was one night, if you want, I can retell that story that is yeah. in my blurb. Okay. Yeah. So there was one night where, um, because you harvest hives at night when the bees are sleeping and confused and you use like smoke and fire to disorient them so you don't get stung like crazy. Um, African bees, you know, we've all heard now about the Africanized bees in the U.S. Um, those are a hybrid of the gentle European bees we used for years in the U.S. and these African bees who are more aggressive no, they'll they'll swarm on you and they'll sting like crazy and they'll abandon. You know, it's like if they feel threatened at all, they will leave the hive and take all the honey with them. Um, so they're kind of wild cards. So at night, you harvest at night and it's dark. They're sleeping. You wake them up with smoke and fire and you grab the honey and then you run like hell and get inside. And beekeeping is a really macho thing there or traditional beekeeping and or was again, everything is. Let's, let's freeze time in the early 80s. It's probably very much the same, but beekeepers would be like wearing nothing but a pair of shorts, like no shoes, no bee protection, no bee veil, no suit. And that was just sort of part of it was um, 
sort of like the macho getting stung and so what. Um, so I went to this village. It was our first harvest of one of the Kenya top bar hives. And we, it was kind of a disaster. The, the bees started stinging. You don't just like scoop the hive out and run. You have to open the hive up. For some reason, they had to carry it from one place to another. They dropped the hive and the bees just went nuts. Um, the, the cover of smoke and fire was completely blown and the bees knew something bad was up and it was total pandemonium. Um, and the comb broke. It was just sort of like, first of all, this really disappointing kind of work anti-climax and the, you know it just like it didn't work this technology that was supposed to be so great it didn't work in this situation it needed the bugs worked out so to speak or the bees the sting worked out of it <laughs> and uh and so after that I had dinner with his family and I stayed with the family in their home and I had drifted off to sleep in the room that they gave me to sleep in. And suddenly I was like jolted awake because there was someone in my room and it was the, my, my beekeeping counterpart that I'd been working with who had tiptoed into my room fully expecting that, of course, we were going to sleep together, right? Um, and it was like, no, we are not. That's like never been on the table. Um, and I just started yelling at him, like, what are you doing in here? Like, get out of here. You're not supposed to be in here. And the whole, I'm sure the whole house woke up and he went, you know, he left the room. Um, I never felt really physically threatened, but I was really pissed and I was really, um, just like disappointed that's like I've been working really hard on this project and this you know and and this is what it's really about and the next morning I got up really early the whole house was up and he like told he said to me in front of his family it's like oh Janet oh my god you totally misunderstood last night there was I, I woke up and I heard someone trying to steal your motorcycle and I came in to tell you that there was someone outside trying to steal your motorcycle, which to me is like, really? Like I'm supposed like I'm supposed to get up and go chase them, or you hear someone stealing my motorcycle, aren't you supposed to like run out there and chase them off? Like it was mm -hmm. so implausible. But I, I realized that he was trying to save face in front of his family and all I knew how to react was I just got on my motorcycle and I rode back to Oradara and I never went back to that village. Um, and I don't know if I'd been cooler headed and more mature and better trained to deal with that kind of thing, I would have sucked it up and said, of course, I totally understand. Thank you for saving my motorcycle. Let's put this hive back together, you know, but I wasn't up to that task. Mm -hmm. And I went back to Oradara. I remember, again, it was one of those sort of like a good feeling where I went back and it was morning. It was a fog, a rare foggy kind of overcast morning. And I remember coming home and going right next door to Mariam's adobe thatched roofed smoky kitchen and just like the warmth and the 
the solace of her company and her kitchen. And she fed me this. She was Mosi from Mosi country. She was away from her home also. And she fed me. I loved, um, I only know the Mosi word is banga, which is black eyed peas and rice and coarse salt and red pepper and dark cottonseed oil which is mm-hmm. probably the worst thing you could possibly eat it's so delicious so just like the comfort of her kitchen on the morning after that experience um and the 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 solace of that friendship and that space mm-hmm. well was how you know it's like the the, the end that i remember to that particular story mm-hmm. well thank you for sharing that and i don't think anybody would fault you on your reaction and and how you reacted, even though if you do have some regrets after the fact of maybe how you could have handled it differently, I think there'd be few people that would have reacted differently than the way you did. Yeah. And, you know, as I age, I realize I don't actually regret that. It's like, that was too bad, Mm -hmm. but I was doing my best. And that was, that was my best. Mm-hmm. I'm not the person I, I was not the person then that I am now and I think that's you know I envy those volunteers who go not straight out of college and mm-hmm. you know have a, a really different experience yeah now you had the opportunity to return back to Burkina Faso uh, several times how how did it change with each visit and what are the ways that you saw your community that you served in as a volunteer, you know, develop over the years? Yeah. Um, when I lived in Oradara, it was, there was no electricity. There was no running water. The road to Oradara was not paved. There was a medical center. I think it might've been called a hospital but it was, you know, again, it was very basic. There was no electricity. There was no running water. Um, I had a friend who was a midwife. She invited me to spend the night one night when she was on shift and a woman came in and had twins. That was amazing. Just like the, the most basic services that, that were available to people in life or death situations. Um, there was no, it, 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 at the time it was called Sovolcom. It changed its name with, when the revolution changed the country name, but it was a, um, it was a government owned store that sold basic things at fixed prices to keep rural people from being price gouged. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, over time, I, kept going back for maybe five years, six years after I returned three times to Orodara. And every time I went back, people were better off. Um, my Mr. Bado and Mariam had moved out of their rental that they were living in immediately next door to me and had developed a piece of land to the west of Oradara on the Sikasso Road. And they had a home there and fields there. And when I went back to visit, 
Monsieur Bado opened up the storehouse room and it was just like floor to ceiling with peanuts. Um, the road eventually, well, it was after my last trip there, but the road there is now paved. The road between Oradara and Bobo is now paved. There was there were a couple of deep bore wells that were put in by my final visit so that people had access to easily pumped, um, you know, the, everything before. When I lived there, it was all hand dug well, and you threw a bucket down there, and you know, ev- I got incredible upper body strength because every drop of water that I used, I pulled out of like a forty-five meter well, um, and there were pumps, capped wells, safe drinking water. The there was electricity. Um, there was a, a national store where people could get commodities at a you know at a fair price. Um, and then there's the story of my neighbor Biba, who I think is kind of it's an individual story, and maybe it's a story about the country as a whole. Um, or maybe it's just her story, but Biba, I lived, I lived in kind of a, um, a new, I lived in a new building. It was made of block. It had a metal ceiling and a metal roof that mostly leaked, but it was, it was, it was okay. And it was like a row house. So I had a three room apartment on the end and Biba was my, shared a wall with me and she had a three room place. And there were a couple of other sort of two and three room places down in the same little courtyard. We shared a well, we shared an outdoor latrine and little shower enclosure. Um, And Biba was next door to me with her kids and she had, her husband worked as a driver in Bobo and he had kind of abandoned her for, a wealthy woman who didn't have any kids. And Biba was, I think, heartbroken, but also just like financially destitute because he wasn't supporting her. Or if he was, it was just on the barest bones of things. Um, One of her older daughters who was in high school in Bobo told me that she was walking on the street in Bobo and she passed the truck that her father drove, a little, a little Peugeot truck that her father drove. And um, the, he was in the driver's side and the window was rolled down. And as she walked by, she heard the passenger say to her father, isn't that your daughter? And her father said, no. Wow. Yeah. Um, and eventually Biba's husband installed this other woman in the next apartment down. So she was just like right in Biba's face all the time. And she had, this other woman had like all these beautiful pots and pans and pretty Chinese enamel dishes and lots of nice clothes and a whole wardrobe of plastic shoes. And she came with a child who, as far as I could tell, was like a slave. Mm-hmm. It was the, this little girl who was not her child and spent all day long just sort of working. The, the woman would sit out in front of the house that, you know, we all shared sort of a common veranda um, front 
porch area and she would just sit out there sort of sit out all day and this child would just work washing you know washing dishes and doing laundry and cleaning the plastic shoes and then she would have to line all this stuff up in the sun to dry and it was kind of this ostentatious display of all the prosperity that Biba didn't have um and so Biba was just just completely depressed and she and I would sit out at night on my porch and you know on full moon nights when everyone hangs out and talks as opposed to like dark moon nights when everyone just goes inside and goes to bed um but Biba and I spent a lot of porch time sitting out front talking and Biba would say you know my strength is gone and I, I, you know, it's always going to be like this. It's totally horrible. I used to be, you know, it, in the old days, I was a market woman and I would go down to Banfora on the truck and I would buy a bunch of watermelons and I would bring them up to Oradara and sell them and make money. And I can't do that. It's like, I can't do that anymore. And I'd say, well, why not? And she would say, because money calls money. And it's, you know, it's like there was a popular song, Argent appelle l'argent. Um, everybody knows it takes money to make money. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, what if you started really small? You know, it's like, what if you started small and kind of just like a little bit at a time, you know, that other, that other proverb that's like, doni, doni, kononi benyagadang, you know, little by little, the bird makes its nest. And, you know, and she'd be like, no, I can't do that. But eventually she did, you know, she, while I was living still in Oradara, she started roasting, buying raw peanuts and roasting them. And in the evening when people are out kind of wandering around greeting each other, she would set out a little table just outside of our courtyard and sell little penny, penny piles of peanuts. And she kind of graduated from that to... Um, selling fried sweet potatoes out in front of our courtyard in the street in the evenings. And, and I don't think Americans can quite understand like the kind of capital that it takes to do these small things. Um, mm. Oil, firewood, sweet potatoes is a big step up from peanuts. And then she started going to the market on Thursday, Oradara had a weekly market, um, and she started going to the market on Thursdays and selling. Uh, she started with sweet potatoes, and then she like pulled up to um, beignets, um, like f fried dough, uh -huh. which is another like step up because it's flour, it's sugar, um, it's yeast. There are more ingredients; it's more value added, and. I'm kind of blending in these different because I, you know, I lived in Dendereso. I would come back. Um, but the second time that I went back to visit her, she had um, an all day, every day stall in the market, which was pretty rare. Most of the market women just came on Thursdays and left, but there were a handful of women who, were there every day and sold more things. And she was selling a lot of different spices. And she was selling sort of condiments for the sauce. Um, 
She had spices and salt and magi cubes and just like bits and pieces that you would put into sauce. And she also had amazing, she had a peanut roaster, a wood wood powered peanut roaster that was like made out of a big metal drum that you cranked and you could roast a whole bunch of peanuts at once. And she was having that ground and she was also wholesaling peanut butter to other market women. And she looked really good and the kids looked really good. And she was dressed, you know, she was, she had really nice clothes and she seemed happy. And she told me that the best, you know, it's like, this is like your Peace Corps moment, right? Yeah, definitely. It's like you coach this person and it's like, yeah, you can do it. And she does it. And she said the thing that she was like so relieved about was that she could finally afford the celebrations for her youngest daughter's clitorodectomy. <laughs> It's not how you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the best thing that Biba wants for herself and her family is not necessarily the best thing that I want for her. Mm-hmm. I don't know if everybody comes to this point in their Peace Corps service where, where you realize that it's not about you and the things you told your friends before you left and the things that you saw in the Peace Corps, you know, these golden recruitment videos, there's, there's, there's something much bigger at work that's way bigger than you. Mm-hmm. No, it, I mean, I like to say that from, for most people, whenever you talk about your service, especially with, with non-Peace Corps volunteers, it's always, you know, the, the things you saw, the things you ate, and the parasites you picked up along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but for those of us who served, it's it's so much more, and it's it's almost impossible to really put it into words, especially for someone who never had an experience like that and how they can understand it. So I th- I think the majority of people who are listening to this and those who have served will really understand what you mean when you say that. Yeah, I think so. And and. You know, to, to kind of veer off apropos of like most people who haven't been through this can't possibly get it. I was really lucky that <clears throat> my mom came to visit me and it, it was a really she came for a month and it was really difficult because it kind of reversed the parent child role. You know, um, I by the time she came to visit, I'd been there 18 months. I was really pretty or relatively culturally fluent and kind of knew like what to do and what not to do. And having my mom there was just this incredible gift because there was one person, you know, it gave me that one person from back home who had a glimpse of what that was like. And it was incredibly difficult because I also felt like I was hurting you know, I was, I was, I was keeping a, I had a five-year-old all of a sudden who was curious about everything and, you know, just like, wow. Um, you know, sometimes I felt like, oh my God, I need a leash. <laughs> um, 
but it was, you know, uh, the net, the net blessing and gift and gain of having my mom come visit is still just like immeasurable even today. And, you know, I'm 58 and she's 86 and that was 30 some odd years ago. And I'm still grateful to her for that visit. And in the end, she and I both got really, really sick. I think we were both like so stressed out from that um, for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what an opportunity to to have someone from your life sort of before Peace Corps that can really understand it and had that opportunity to spend so much time with you. But that itself is something special. Oh, totally. Yeah. Did anyone come visit you? No, they did not. Uh, May... I had a few people that had asked, and uh, I actually told them uh, not to that I would I would meet up with them elsewhere. But uh, unlike you, I wasn't willing to to do that babysitting. Uh, but <laughs> but but eventually, I, I do want to take um, my girlfriend back with me to Burkina Faso, uh, so she can understand a little bit better um, mm-hmm. why I think this place is so special. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, probably why you are the way you are. <laughs> yes, for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, so I guess sort of tying into that and, you know, how Peace Corps maybe changed you and the things you learned, in what ways do you feel that it really shaped your identity and who you are now being back in the United States? It's interesting. I think... I, you know, I came back in the midst of the high rolling, fast moving, make a ton of money 80s. And I just had no taste for it. It was like, I don't care about any of that stuff. Um, and I still, you know, it's like I've, <laughs> I've had sort of like, I haven't had any desire to be a success by that measure because I already feel like uh, I live such a life of luxury at, at, at very simply. Um, I turn on the tap in my house and it still, after all these years, just amazes me that safe water comes out all the time. And I can turn this other tap and, oh my God, hot water comes out whenever I want it. Like, what? how could you want more than that? Mm-hmm. I remember coming back to the courtyard one day and Biba's two, like, eight and ten-year-old daughters came running toward me with this, these huge grins on their faces, like, look what we got. Like, I don't know, what? I, you know, I don't see it. And they're like, Chaussette. They each had a pair of socks. I think of that sometimes when I open my sock drawer. I have a sock drawer, and it's full of socks that I never wear. Um, that stayed with me. Mm-hmm. That that appreciation of what we take for granted every day. So I've lived pretty simply since then and you know my luxuries are plane tickets 
Mm-hmm. I don't really care about clothes. I don't eat out. Um, I've never, you know, I've always had like a total beater vehicle and pretty much rode my bicycle everywhere I need to go. And my big luxury is traveling and going places that I, I, I love to go non-Western places and learn as much of the language as I can and kind of try to shake myself up and get myself out of my comfort zone. So since I left Peace Corps, I learned Arabic and spent time in Syria and Yemen. And this last spring, I spent 10 weeks walking, just walking a very long pilgrimage route in Japan and working on Japanese and just talking talking to strangers. That's my luxury. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a luxury that I, I find much more valuable than all the, the glitz and glamour that you see ads for and something that, that can't be properly monetized of, of what you get. I mean, you, you know, you say, oh, you buy the plane ticket, but there's, we both know that there's so much more tied to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe I'm, you know, I am always in, in those travels in, you know, completely different non European, non American cultures. I'm always looking for that that thing that I felt in Peace Corps of um, being somewhere where not everybody, somewhere very different from my own culture and that delicious sense of putting language puzzle. You know, I told you earlier, I'm such a language geek. Um, I love putting language puzzle pieces together and those aha moments where it's like, oh, you know, you find one puzzle piece and they uh, all these loose ones suddenly fall into place and you understand things that you didn't understand before. And I still get a real rush out of that. Well, I, I just have to say, you know, thank you for spending the time uh, with me today and, and sharing your story. And, you know, it's I mean, as I said in the very beginning, I was excited to hear your experience and to to sort of relive mine as you were telling it and thinking mm-hmm. of all, all these additional stories that like, Oh, I remember this and that time. And Oh, her story mm-hmm. about the bees is exactly like the time that I went and harvested bees and, and, ah. t- and, and at, at night and the, the fire and the smoke and just so many things that I could relate to. So uh, if, if anything, I'm probably going to be one of the biggest fans of this, <laughs> this episode. So I, I, I thank you for taking the time out of your day and sharing your story with me. But before we close... Thank you. Wait. Thank you, Tyler. It's a huge pleasure because, as you know, we don't get to tell our stories very much. Most people are like, oh, yeah, so how was that? And so to have this time of you listening deeply and whoever is listening to this podcast thank you listener for holding my story i really appreciate it Mm, definitely i mean that's what i wanted to do with this podcast because i feel that return volunteers we have so few opportunities and outlets even when you know our friends and family with the best intentions ask us about our service 
they they want three to five minutes. I mean, they're they're mm-hmm. they're they're not in it for the detail that we really want to bring to it and try to explain, you know, what we went through and what we felt and what we learned. But Peace Corps volunteers, and especially you know, return volunteers, and I would hope that people listening to this are also people who are in Peace Corps and can relate to things and how you overcame them and how other people who have been on the show have dealt with difficulties and that also people interested in the Peace Corps, those who are, you know, staring at the application, wondering if it's right for them, listen to your episode and others and have a better sense of appreciation of what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But once again, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I like to end each episode with uh, with a quote from your local language. And since you're going to be doing Jula, I'm also excited about that. So can you share a quote or local saying with us that has stayed with you all these years? Mm. Yeah, so many different blessings. It's hard to choose. Um, but the one that the one that I really loved that I learned from Mariam one night walking back from bringing dinner to Monsieur Badeau and looking up at the sky and seeing that that little sliver of the new crescent moon, and she said, "Alaka herebana," which means "May it end in peace," and it's a blessing for. It's recognizing the new moon as the beginning of the month ahead and and saying, you know, sort of may this month end in peace. And I still, when I see the new moon, I kind of whisper that to myself. Well, thank you for, for sharing that quote. And as we're talking right now, it's the, the first week of 2018. And I hope that that sentiment carries with it for this year for you, that you have an amazing year looking forward and that it is a a peaceful and prosperous year. And thank you again for, for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you, Tyler. And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want to stay better connected with me and the My Peace Corps Story podcast, head on over to mypeacecorpsstory.com. If you want to know my personal Peace Corps story, please check out my book, Service Disrupted, available on Amazon. Every volunteer has a story. What's yours?